if you're specific enough in some of the story details, people react and they adapt it to themselves. In other words, you hear uh, a story about like uh, Cinderella or Hamlet or whatever else. And part of you is going, I am like Hamlet in this way. I am not like Hamlet in this way. My father is not a ghost talking to me from a tower, right? I did not, I have no temptation to put on a play to kill my stepfather or whatever it is, right? But even in doing that, if it's specific enough with the details of some of the story you use, then people automatically say, that's not me. But if you shifted it in this way, it would be. And so they're already uh, adapting some of those details, even without you saying, you need to think about how this applies to you. We, we naturally do that. We naturally hear stories and we place ourselves as the main character or side characters, or say we are not that, which in which case we're writing our own story. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Frontier Talk podcast. I'm Raj Hegde, and in this podcast, we explore the intersection of identity, people, and technology. Now, storytelling is a key skill that is relevant to everyone, whether you're looking to sell a product, you're looking to raise funds for a new startup, or are just looking to get buy-in for your proposal from key decision makers. A compelling narrative goes a long way to help you achieve what you desire. Yet for some strange reason, the skill is somewhat taken for granted and there are very few frameworks and narrative arcs out there on the internet today. Uh, my guest in the pod is, is someone who wears multiple hats, both literally and figuratively, and he has his background purely rooted in theology. He has had a stellar career to date in the identity and security space and to me personally is one of the best public speakers going around the block. Here to help you become a world-class business communicator, please join me in welcoming Mike Kaiser, the Director of Strategy and Standards at SailPoint. Mike, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Raj. I think you're a little over-hyping me, but I'll, I'll allow it for now. Thanks for the flattering intro. <laughs> the pleasure is all mine, Mike. Um, I'd like to start off by demystifying the mystery behind your hat, so to say. Um, is it a Texas thing or... How did the hat come about to become such an integral part of your identity? Sure, sure. Uh, it's not that much of a mystery. Um, it's not have just has nothing to do with Texas, believe it or not. Um, right. Even though I am, you know, I hail from Austin, Texas. The I used to work at IBM, and when okay. I was working at IBM, part of my job for five to six years was advising people on strategy, especially in a competitive. Uh, security environment. And I did that for the entire division of IBM security, which meant I was the strategy uh, competitive analysis guy for 6,000, 7,000 people or something like that. Wow. And so yeah. when I go to conferences to help people find me and be able to hunt me down amidst the sea of people, I would tell them, look, if you need advice, if you want to talk over coffee or a drink or, or strategize, uh, come find me. I'm the Yahoo in the hat. And so it really kind of made it easier for people to, oh, there's the guy in the hat. I can go talk to him about X, Y, and Z. 
Um, they didn't have to remember my face. They could just remember I'm that, you know, that Yahoo. And so once I okay. started doing it, um, people mm-hmm. just, it, it kind of stuck by accident. And so then if I didn't wear a hat, the first question is always, what's wrong? Where's your hat? You know, which is, yeah. which is fine. Um, so it just kind of, it fell into it really. Um, I, I do like the, the U S of the 1940s or the, the myth of, you know, hat wearing and all of that, but it just kind of fell into it. So it's it originally, it was just part of a, a strategy to help communicate with people. And then it, it just became a thing. So who am I to not give the people what they want? I suppose, but. That's a great story in there, right, Mike? Um, you know, I'm curious to now explore your storytelling approach within the context of your keynote at EIC last year, titled Identity is the New Blue. Now, I personally was in awe of that presentation because I found it fascinating how you connect the progression of the color blue with the state of identity as we know it today. To our audience, could you perhaps... Uh, break down the presentation for us as to how it came about? Uh, Sure. Um, I am constantly just on the prowl, so to speak, looking for stories, looking for interesting tidbits. Mm -hmm. And once my day job became a lot more um, public speaking and communicating about identity and security over the years, it's just kind of a, a default uh, approach where I'm wherever I'm reading newscasts or I'm listening to to podcasts or having conversations with friends, some part of the back of my brain is constantly thinking, what's what's the analogy? How does this relate to uh, something I want to communicate? Whether it's security related or persuading friends about other things, right? Um, you know, part of my brain is constantly looking for that odd connection, and so mm-hmm. I had heard about um the color blue being the color of 2020 okay and then somewhere on some some podcast or something and i don't remember the original source someone offhand said yeah blue wasn't really a color in the ancient world and i was like i had the first reaction i think a lot of people do which is what do you mean it was of course it was a color the sky was always blue the sea was blue And so I went to, this is going to sound really low level and kind of nerdy, but uh, with three children, we went to the public library uh, in June of 2019, 2020, before everything hit. And so I checked out a bunch of books on the history of color Mm -hmm. and read way too much um, and found some, some reliable sources. And it turns out, yeah, this is a whole thing. And so once... Uh, I had the narrative. I knew also that it was going to be super visual, which is really appealing, right? Okay. The more the more you can engage people in visuals or audio or really anything um, helps quite a bit in the experience, especially if you're talking. It helps them break out of like, oh, this guy's doing a slide talk versus, mm-hmm. oh, this guy's uh, arguing for a, a concept. And so uh, I did a bunch of research and then – my my poor partner uh, at home she is a um a long form editor and so okay. what that means is i exploit her endlessly cuz what right. i'll do is i will say hey have you heard about this idea and talk about it over a month or two and eventually my story gets better and better in part cuz she's like no that's not interesting no this is not part of a 
a narrative trajectory, um, mm-hmm. uh, that that kind of a process. But eventually, um, it, it had a a tight uh, a, a tight enough story. But then when the the pandemic hit, it was actually even easier because of the rapid transformation we all saw take place. Absolutely, Blue had a an easy parallel there, and so. Uh, you know, it was a it was a lot of base research, and then just the idea sat there for a year and a half until I knew that I I wanted to communicate a big idea about the rise and popularity of blue, and how we wanted to make identity not just commonplace but popular, attractive, you know, equitable and easy to use. All the things I talked about in my keynote, and then. I had that blue story and other options, but the blue, I think, fit, fit the best that were able to be usable in service of that big idea, if that makes sense. So it's right. it's kind of a a symbiotic process, right? There are things that that I feel strongly about or passionate about or people in the industry feel strongly about, right, or needs to be mm-hmm. communicated. And then I'm constantly thinking of tangential stories that engage listeners and shake them out of just default, uh, someone holding forth, so to speak. Um, so that's kind of a, it's got a long process, uh, of refinement over months in this case, a year and a half or so, I think. So, right. Right. Um, I'd love to explore more about your choice of analogies. Um, you know, I personally believe that a thought provoking presentation is one that seamlessly connects the right dots in the right order. And I'm more curious to learn more about your dot collection process. You know, where it starts from. You mentioned that you, you visited the public library to get more research. You learned that blue wasn't a color in the first place through a friend of yours. So that initiated a spark. But let's explore two scenarios. Um, Exhibit A would be, say, you finalize a story or a message that you'd like to communicate to your audience, and then you go around exploring abstract concepts that perhaps fit into that narrative? Or is it the other way around, wherein you just randomly go out there to collect concepts that you find interesting, and you store them in this imaginary cupboard of yours, and then you say, finalize a message that you'd like to deliver to your audience, and then you open this cupboard and then pick the right dot that fits the narrative. So which which of the two approaches seems like a, a better fit? Both and. In other words, I'm okay. constantly looking for fascinating stories that interest mm-hmm. me that are not mm-hmm. uh, not common, right? Anything that's okay. surprising or shocking or fascinating. And then that's kind of, so that's kind of just stored somewhere. Right. Right. Um, So that's always kind of there, but then, you know, it's not just storytelling for storytelling sake, although that's lovely, you know, after, you know, the conference or at night, or I love, Mm -hmm. you know, people telling fascinating stories about themselves or about life. Um, But after you have that repository of stories, then I drill down when I have a talk to give or I want to communicate something, I drill down on a, what I'll call a big idea. In other words, this is a one sentence, very simple statement of what I want the audience to believe or do or walk away with. Right. Um, So, so for example, the blue one would be identity is on the same trajectory as the color blue. And we need to make sure that it becomes popular. That's the whole talk in one simple sentence, right? And so Mm -hmm. then 
everything else I do has to fit into service of that big idea. And a lot of times this feels like death. So for example, in the blue story, there's this huge competition between the color red and the color blue, and it waged for years, and it's kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. And there's aspects where, oh, red took over for a bit, but then it doesn't really serve that big idea um, mm -hmm. well enough to be included. So what a, what a lot of it is, is making sure, what am I trying to communicate? What am I trying to communicate? What am I trying to communicate? And refining, saying, oh, here are like five stories I could use. Which one of these looks the best? initially right and then playing with it and molding it to make sure it matches the outline of salient points i want to support my big idea from the identity perspective right so mm -hmm. it, it's a little bit symbiotic but the primary is that that big idea that that holds everything together um now there are times when i i say here's a big idea i want to communicate here are my repository of ideas and none of them really seem to work. Then I'll go trolling for one, you know, um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure what, um, like identity, uh, needing to be easy to use, for instance. Well, now I'm going to go look for a story that's all about that core right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, my store of ideas don't work, but now every conversation back in my head, every thing I listen to, I'm like, well, is this, does this work? Does that work? You know, that type of thing. Um, it takes a while right. though. So it's kind of both ends. There's a store, but there's also looking for things, but it all has to serve, you know, whatever I'm trying to communicate. If, if people come and they say, oh, that was a great story. I have no idea what his point was. Well, mm -hmm. then I've, I've wasted everybody's 15, 20 minutes, you know? So at least I think. That is true. And 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 how do you stress test these ideas? I mean, of course, you have a wife. Your your wife is a long form editor, no doubt. And you're in a lucky space in that sense. But how do you know what you what you what you're trying to create makes sense? Because you know it's easy when you're when you are a conformist and you tend to do a better variant of what everyone else is doing. But when you're trying to create something original, there's always a risk. But more often than not, that it would go about the heads of many. So how do you? Bring that sanity, so to say, in yeah. in, in this process. Uh, well, my friends suffer through a lot of me pitching them stories, <laughs> to be honest. Right. Um, also, okay. thinking about, it's almost like a three-part thing, right? The big idea, whatever story you're trying to tell, and who you're telling it to. Uh, mm -hmm. Because the language and the way you pitch it changes quite a bit. So in other words, right. I, what I do a lot of times is I find someone who's not in identity and not in security, not in technology. And I say, mm -hmm. hey, you know, let me tell you a story. And if I can explain it in terms that they understand and they can get and they identify with, then I know I'm, I'm kind of on to something. And the more, the more I do it, uh, the more it, it gets tighter and tighter. And I realized this is essential and this is not essential. And I just spent six minutes talking about this side topic that just confused the crap out of everybody, um, which is also common because I talk a lot, as you can tell. Um, so I actually, and in doing it, one of the things I stole, originally heard about it from actually Ian Glazer, who is now at mm -hmm. Salesforce doing identity. Um, but also in my formal, my master's degree, we had rhetoric training 
And part of it is there's a, a long process for, you know, having an idea, writing an outline. But one of the things I picked up from him and that was reinforced in grad school was writing out the story in full. Because what that actually okay. does is it forces me to and forces people to align their ideas in ways you don't when you speak orally. So if I told you a story right. about my childhood, it's going to come out one way. If I write it down, well, now mm. I've, I've made conscious decisions about what I've included and what I haven't included. And I can go back and edit that, which is really powerful. Um, now, when I give the actual talk, I don't use those notes because otherwise it I'll start to sound like a robot repeating a text. But mm. um, it's helpful for for editing and refining that process. So once I'd say I pitch it to people and tell the story mm -hmm. over um, a couple of times, trying to find new people so they don't have to suffer through it. Um, yeah. And then uh, you should ask my back when we were in the office before COVID my cubicle mm -hmm. mates. Oh man, they just got so tired of, of particular topics, which is like, fine. There was like a particular hour called Mike's story time <laughs> hour where you'd, be exposed to a bunch of wonderful stories. I mean, I'd love to be in a position where I could hear interesting stories because, you know, I mean, everywhere I see is that there's a lot of sameness that is going around. I don't know. I, I just believe for some reason people haven't been forced to, in a sense, form their own worldview or form a point of view. And they just tend to believe what is being said or what is out there rather because it's the easy thing to do, right? And I think... There has to be a forcing function for someone to basically get on that path to explore things that are not being said before, to understand the world from their own lens. And um, I think, you know, public speaking in one sense, you know, is a great forcing function for you to go out there and do that. But is there anything that could stimulate um, individuals to just go out there and improve um their knowledge on a wide range of things that perhaps interest them? Well, I think it's both and, right? Yeah, to directly mm. respond to your question. Yeah. I mean, yeah. finding people who aren't like you, listening to podcasts you disagree with, <laughs> um, reading news sources or books that, that make you, or movies, whatever else, right? The more input you get, the more you have to work with. I would also say, mm -hmm. though, that everybody has something that... Um, makes them come alive. And you can see this when you talk to people. You, I had a friend who uh, was going to give a talk at, at a conference once and he was stuck on ideas and he knew what he wanted to talk about, but he didn't know how to frame it or how to make it more mm -hmm. interesting to people. And I said, what are you doing this weekend? He said, well, I'm going kayaking. And I knew this guy went kayaking like every couple of weeks. And so once okay. I asked a couple of questions, he lit up like a like a fire or a light bulb. And he went yeah. on for like 10 minutes about, he went through this gate and then he did a roll and he's teaching these people how to do mm -hmm. stuff. And the river's crazy. And I was like, you, this is your topic. Like you. And so I think a lot of people, you don't necessarily need uh, amazing stories. I think a lot of people already have amazing stories or have amazing mm -hmm. things that are, I don't know anything about kayaking. And so hearing him talk about it, I wanted to go kayaking. And I was like, mm -hmm. this is amazing. And so I think people can find their personality and bring it into what they're saying and their experience that I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, no one's interested in that. Well, actually, they probably are. If you're excited about it, that comes, that definitely comes through. Um, so I, 
you know, I think it's both and, right? It's it's diversity of mm-hmm. inputs, but also realizing that you have something, everybody has something that they're jazzed about and leaning into that, you know, uh, is a really way, easy way to tap into having these dynamic stories that can translate um, into communicating truth about identity or security or really anything you want to convince people of. Absolutely. I think exciting things can simply be invoked if you involve. And I think many people involve in, in their passions and interests. And I'm sure they have a story hidden deep down. It's just, um, so, so Mike, in your, in your EIC keynote, you talked about, uh, profits, uh, and popularizers, profits being the ones who blaze a trail and the popularizers are the ones who eternally get, who basically get, um, a story uh, or a means to the masses. Could you perhaps double click on this and highlight the role of storytelling within each context? Sure, sure. It's fascinating because people tend to be, I think, especially in our industry, are more attached to or give more acclaim to profits. In other words, people who are mm. the voice crying out in the wilderness saying, this is happening. We need to go here. We need to do these five things. And, you know, in for a profit kind of character, storytelling, you know, is making people make a break with what they thought before uh, and probably in a okay. large way, right? It's It's stirring people up. Um, being very passionate about something, regardless of the reaction you get. And that that's also difficult, right? Because you can feel when you're telling a story or you're giving a talk or when you're telling talking to someone about something and they're reacting or they're not reacting. And I think it's it's an odd irony there because I think profits are highly regarded, but people tend to ignore them. Most profits aren't mm-hmm. listened to in their lifetime, in their, their, I would say, in their time of influence, right? It's like, oh, 20 years ago, someone said that, and wow, she was right. You know, it's that kind of a, a vibe. Uh, most of them, yeah, don't, don't have massive success. Um, the the um, popularizers are much less oddly popular a lot of times, right? Um, but what they do is they make uh, make it really easy for people to um, to adopt new ways of thinking or to adopt something that's right there. They just haven't thought about using it in a particular way. So it's not so much, I don't think, in storytelling and popularizers, I don't think it's so much forcing people to change directions, to turn... 180 degrees from where they were going or how they were thinking it it's more mm-hmm. of a look how how showing the value or showing an easy path to adoption um so i think in that sense i would expect popularizers to well both of them would be thinking about their audience right profits would be confronting mm-hmm. their audiences more often or trying to shock their audiences maybe Whereas popularizers, right. I would argue, are trying to to make them go, oh, I I hadn't thought about that, but I I already agree with premise A, and so if that leads to premise B, then you know, oh, that you know, yeah, it's kind of almost right. opening the door and welcoming them into a house as opposed to walking around and hitting them with a bat or something, trying to get them to think mm-hmm. of something. That's mm-hmm. two different vibes, yeah. right, and different audience awareness. But I, yeah, both 
I think could could use storytelling or those concepts for sure. Right. Um, let's uh, dive deep into the the process of storytelling per se. But before that, uh, you know, Simon Sinek always tells us to start any conversation with why. So could you perhaps uh, let all of us know why is storytelling relevant to anyone? So why should anyone care about storytelling and what's in it for them? Yeah, well, if you've listened to any, if you read a book, you've listened to any podcast uh, recently, you know, someone somewhere has said 1500 times that we're designed for story. All right. So that's kind of a, a beaten mm -hmm. down meme at this point, but it's true. Uh, you think about how people are motivated, uh, why movies are uh, popular, why stories are popular. Like it, it basically, um, gives you a way to connect with people and move them and it gives them space to think space to maneuver around the framework you've built. You're saying, look, I want you to think this or go and change and, and be like this. If I'm really didactic mm -hmm. and prescriptive and I say, Raj, you need to subscribe to your local newspaper and support print journalism. And if you don't, you're a bad person. Well, that's, that's great. But if I say, look, newspapers have always been informative. They've been this rock basis of of news dissemination and look how they changed this culture or look how they, they advocated for justice in this environment. I'm engaging you on a totally different level, right? And you may still disagree, but mm. there's, there's room to, for you to negotiate or for you to maneuver around that and right. say, uh, and it's engaging on a different level, right? You're not going to listen to me if I come in and just tell mm. you what to do. But if I, if I engage with you and tell you a story, especially if I can throw you off from what your normal assumptions mm -hmm. are and, 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 and shift the, the way you're thinking about it, then there's space to do that. And storytelling also, if you're specific enough in some of the story details, people react and they adapt it to themselves. In other words, you hear uh, a story about like uh, Cinderella or Hamlet or whatever else. And part of you is going, I am like Hamlet in this way. I am not like Hamlet in mm -hmm. this way. My father is not a ghost talking to me from a tower, right? I did not, I have no temptation to put on a play to kill my stepfather or whatever it is, right? But even in doing yeah. that, if it's specific enough with the details of some of the story you use, then people automatically say, that's not me. But if you shifted it in this way, it would be. And so they're already uh, adapting some of those details, even without you saying, you need to think about how this applies to you. We, we naturally do that. Mm -hmm. We naturally hear stories and we place ourselves as the main character or side characters or say we are not that, which in which case we're running our own story. So it's a, an easy vehicle right. that lets people think and adapt it to themselves without having to be quite as heavy handed. And I think especially um, the, I would argue and not to get too philosophical, but I think that society and culture and humanity is moving from something that's more didactic to something that was, it's a little bit more uh, amorphous story has always been there. I think people are mm -hmm. a little more, um, 
this next generation that's coming up and is already here is more oriented to story than, mm -hmm. than some that have been before. We've always been oriented to story. I think there's a little bit more uh, things are a little, there are gray areas that story can be used to explore rather than cut and dry. This is how things have to be. It's got a meandering right. answer there. And is that but. a good? <laughs> no, no, it is perfect. I mean, this podcast is all about meandering. That's where the, I mean, that's the beauty of oral communication, right? It's, it's, you can actually get the insights of, um, yeah, different concepts, uh, in a wide range of contexts. Uh, but at the point you raised about, um, the current generation being more open to storytelling, um, is that a good thing or a bad thing in the sense that, you know, we had an episode with, with Talk Searles earlier on on this podcast and he mentioned that most people listen for the purpose of dismissing. So I believe that a story in some sense could help alleviate that fear because it makes things more interesting to hear. Uh, Doc is, is right in the sense that I, I, like a lot of people, I like being right, right? Deep down, uh, mm -hmm. the selfish person in me is like, yeah. well, I, I want to critique what the other person is saying and find the holes in it and challenge it if I disagree mm -hmm. with it. Um, I, I think story, yeah. just like it gives people room to maneuver, it gives the storyteller themselves room to maneuver as well, right? I, I, and I think mm -hmm. that stories provide a way to shift your perspective that may not exist otherwise. In other words, if I told, if I told you a story, you know, the one I used from the identity is blue thing where, you know, a little girl in red mm -hmm. uh, takes a pot of white butter to her grandmother's when dressed like her grandmother dressed in black, right? Yeah. You can hear that story and be sympathetic to the wolf, be anti-wolf, Mm -hmm. be uh, dairy-free. I mean, there's there are a lot of different angles depending on who you are and what <laughs> time true. in your life you're at. Yeah. That when I was a kid, I was, mm -hmm. I was definitely the little girl in red because I was a kid, right? As I get older, yeah. I, I find myself identifying with the other characters in the story. Now that may not, that may not be a change in how I right. think about it completely, but it definitely mm -hmm. It lets me shift, you know, what I think about it and what I think the story is about. Right. I, I retell, okay. uh, weekly, I retell, uh, stories orally with a group. Um, and in retelling them, I've told some of these same stories over and over and over and over again. And what's really fascinating is I have told some of these stories like five or six times around a fire or at work mm -hmm. or whatever else. Um, and each time I tell it, I know it, right? I know it. I memorize it because I have genetically yeah. good memory. But every time I tell it, I learn from other people who bring these new perspectives or even just me telling it, I hear something different because I'm different. The story's the same, but the environment's different. The people are different. I'm different. And so every time things shift a little bit. And so it's, it's fascinating how meaning and purpose can evolve over the years as a result. Right. That's a great answer. Um, more so on the frameworks per se, um, how do you craft a compelling narrative? Uh, do you perhaps have a framework for us in terms of how you go about um, creating your story? Mm, good question. Um, Kurt Vonnegut diagrams the plots of narratives. If you haven't seen it, go on YouTube, watch. There's a five, 10 minute clip 
It's there's like three or four different versions of it. They're really fascinating. Um, there are not that many different narrative arcs for stories. Uh, you may have heard of the hero's journey or these kinds of things. There's two or three of them. One um, is like man falls in a person falls in a well where it starts out happy. It gets really sad and then gets happy back at the end. Um, just like that, there's right. also a common narrative arcs that you can use in speaking right now. The simplest ones are really straightforward and you can recognize these when you watch movies or hear people talk. Uh, easiest one I can think of is problem solution application, right? You hear speakers say, look, here's this disastrous thing like say space junk and the early earth orbit is full of it. And we're all going to just suffer as a result. Okay. Well then what's the solution? Well, here's how we should solve that. And then application would be, okay, and here's your part to play, right? So you can do that structure. Um, and once you have that structure, whether it's good, bad, good, or, or whatever the narrative arc is, then you can make that story fit, right? That's part of that looking for what the story is fitting right. the big idea that I have. You know, problem solution application is probably the most straightforward, but it, it doesn't always have to okay. be, have to be like that, right? Um, like, uh, the ones that I've done most recently have just been this like climb to popularity. I did a talk on stings every breath you take, mm -hmm. which, you know, started out with a demo tape and then wound up being the most played song of all time. Uh, blue started out from yeah. just not existing to being the most popular color of, of 2020. But I would say also mm -hmm. what you want to look for too, or what I look for is, a steady narrative and then a slight twist. Um, so for example, mm -hmm. the blue thing, it was, you know, didn't exist. Then it became popular in the middle ages and then it became commonplace. But along the way, one of the things I said that I love to say was that if you say blue is your favorite color, you have said nothing. You basically said, I'm normal. You revealed nothing about yourself. So th those kind of fascinating right. turns or twists, are helpful. Like in the blue talk, I wound up not even talking about blue. I wound up talking about a product made with blue, which was blue jeans being super common and, and attributes about mm -hmm. that. Um, with the sting in the police, every breath you take, I talked about, you know, demo tape and constructing the song and playing with norms, but then them performing it live to make it really popular. And I played clips from that. And so what that meant was that change was inevitable. And so whatever system you're using, in this case it was machine learning, you would have to be able to deal with change. And so what's nice is to have this narrative where people think they know where you're going and then a slight twist. Not that you're undermining what you've already said, but that, because mm -hmm. you know, if you're giving a 20, 25 minute talk, about 15 minutes in, well, yeah. the most important parts are the first minute, the last minute, and then there's a dead spot somewhere two thirds in that if you, if you could start to lose people. And so it's helpful to have, it's not necessary, but that's in back of my head. But as a general rule, side note, right. if you nail the first, mm -hmm. you know, minute, minute and a half and keep people at the beginning and close really strong. Yeah. They're going to think you had a grave talk, even if you like fell off the stage at minute 15, really. Um, Cause that's what they're going to remember. So. Right. Anyway.
That's such an interesting narrative to explore, uh, Mike. You know, this reminds me of the time when I was looking to build a narrative around Frontier Talk. And I take great pride in the fact that it is the only podcast on the topic going around. So I banked on the uniqueness factor. But given the narrative arcs that you just mentioned, I'm really hooked by the David and Goliath arc, but with a twist. So I think it would be an interesting thought experiment to say, build a narrative around Frontier Talk right away with this arc. Um, so if I were to take a shot, um, it would go something along the lines of once upon a time, there was a little podcast called Frontier Talk that explored this unique concept called decentralized identity. It was going all right up until this gentleman by the name of Mike Kaiser happened to show up on the pod. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the episode got so viral because of the value that it brought to audiences that it beat all the other podcasts out there. So in turn, through one incident, this little David eventually went on to become a Goliath. How does that work? Is that all right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just depends on what. I guess the the part there though is what you know. What are you trying to make me take away? That frontier is great, right? So right. there's a story, but but you know, I would say start with well, a lose me because that's that's not a great idea to use me as the base of the story. Just kidding. <laughs> um, but figure out what that big idea is. Yeah. Your big idea is probably you know, frontier is an amazing, innovative podcast or or grew mm -hmm. in its short life it became an amazing mm -hmm. thing and so then if that's the case mm -hmm. find something that similarly has that that quick trajectory or a movie or a tv show that's really popular right. look at you know uh any of the disney products for instance the star wars stuff is fairly popular um yeah you know, i just mm -hmm. but yeah there are ideas there but I'm not so sure that this well, episode is really yeah. going to set the world on fire. And, no, it's it's all about being optimistic yeah. in life. And no matter yeah. what, Frontier Talk will always be the number one podcast in go. my eyes. So there you go. We always number one. But it's all about, it's all about yeah, at, at times coming into reality and just actually trying to build a compelling narrative. But that was, yeah, that was a great thought experiment. Um, coming back to storytelling, uh, what, in your opinion, are the traits required to be a good storyteller and how do you build on these skills? Um, knowing stories, um, being excited about the story you're telling, um, okay. being able to adapt your language to wherever right. you are, right? Knowing who you're talking to and finding uh, the back references to make that's in their background or in their, in their experience. Um, so it, it shifting it to, to, to match your audience, uh, audience's needs. I think that if you're a really good storyteller, you do things, uh, there's, there's content and then there's delivery content, you know, right. is that editing and pre-work and paring down to the bare bones of what the narrative is and making sure you hit those really mm -hmm. hard. And then delivery is a, is a separate issue, right? Are you on stage someplace talking to a thousand people? It's going to be a different vibe than if you're having drinks with three people, right? And so your language shifts, right. your cadence switches. I have a friend um, who 
I've heard talk a bunch and I love this guy because he uses pauses incredibly well. And he does, he does stuff like that where you're like, this is amazing because the pauses, I, if I were doing it, I would feel like it was like four minutes. I wasn't saying anything, but um, he uses it, the dead space so well, and it gives people space to think and space to process uh, that, I mean, I just love hearing him talk because he's just so relaxed about it. Um, so I, I think it's more than anything else. It's matching your own style as well. Are, is your personality to be right. professorial? Lean into that. Is, is your personality to be informal mm-hmm. and, uh, make attempts at humor? That's great too. You know, it just depends mm-hmm. on, on what your personal, uh, personality is like and matching that maybe. Right. Uh, And I'm curious, you know, what makes a good pause in the sense that are you better off taking a pause earlier on in your presentation? Because that's when perhaps the audience is is most attentive or does it take place in the middle? Is there like a strategic position where you take a pause? I would say it's a lot like this is going to sound really overwrought. It's a lot like a TV Mm -hmm. show or a film. That's the easiest way. If, if you are giving a, a large, if you're, if you're giving a talk or a, telling a story that needs to be polished to a high degree, or, you know, you spend a lot of effort on it, then I would suggest thinking about it like a script where, where is the high point of your talk? Where is the low point? Where it, basically you're, you're diagramming out the emotion of a scene do the same thing with mm-hmm. your talk. And you can actually block out things with how you tell stories, especially if you know you have a space to work with. So for example, um, you can, the pausing, it, it's going to be after important things, after things you want people to think about, um, in between points or in between sections, or really anytime you want to just let something sit, Right. And and you can do that with blocking as well to make it super powerful. In other words, if something is in the past, little things, it needs to be to your right in most left to right societies. Right. It needs to be to your right. So it starts mm-hmm. over here and ends over here. And along with that pausing, what you can do is you can land someplace on stage, you're walking or you're, you're moving, and then you stop, and then you say what you want them to hear, and then you just pause for a bit. So there, there are techniques there that, that blend in, but I think the core of it is mapping out that story and figuring out mm-hmm. where you need to yell or have emotion or, or to, to vary your right. speech. Because if I talk like this the entire mm-hmm. time, which I have a tendency to do sometimes, then no one's going to listen to me because I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just droning at that point. Right. But if I say, Raj, mm-hmm. you need to listen to these five things. And then I talk mm-hmm. quietly, you know, and that can get really old too. So, you know, you have to balance it out, right? You no one wants to listen to someone yell at them for 15 minutes. 
so this is something you can stress test in in regular conversations and then that eventually plays out in a public setting when you are say um to give a speech on a forum for that matter i mean that's 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 really cool advice i mean i my takeaway from this is to perhaps use pauses in the absence of provocative statements because provocative statements get that response from the audience but if you are speaking something that is known to everyone and everyone is okay with what's going on but then you can add some drama by just taking a 10 to 15 second pause right right perfect right. and it'll it'll feel weird um but yeah. you know and get feedback from people you know if they yeah. if they say we thought you were looking for a knife to attack the crowd well maybe don't do it like that you know so <laughs> right just depends yeah. on yeah. what the reaction is you know so and 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 how important is is cultural context when it comes to reading a room um what should you be aware of um yeah when you're trying out or experimenting uh, such stuff in multiple contexts yeah on, on the id pro uh slack forums we've been having discussions about this actually um some okay uh victoria and i and some other people um talking about where you should always have your audience in mind right right and like when you're in different places if you can uh you should switch uh, like measurement systems that's an easy one right like so if i'm in talking in europe i'll i'll switch to to metric where i where I possibly can which took some years of training but also cultural things right if i'm in if i'm in spain i'm not going to talk about american baseball i'm just right. not unless it's to to mock it or do something else that is self-referential to myself right i mean it's my personal story mm-hmm. that happens to involve baseball but i'm not going to say you know did you see the game last night cuz no one has um you have to be really careful i think about bringing things up because a lot of times you don't know what the connection or what the affiliation is so mm. uh, you know in general i try and stick to things that i know are popular or well thought of or will not cause a reaction right in okay. fact i do a i tell the story about naval warfare and how it changed at the battle of trafalgar with admiral mm-hmm. nelson back in my head i'm always thinking about okay what does it sound like if you're british what does it sound like if you're french or spanish is there an issue there because it was those two fleets against each other right in right. general i don't think anyone's really upset about naval yeah. warfare from 1805 but at the same time it's it's helpful to think about right um mm-hmm. and even just vocabulary and language i will change depending on on who i'm talking to and what i think they what they will respond to because my goal is not uh my goal is to get out of the way for them to hear and buy into the big idea and so everything serves that if my language is too high or too low if my stories uh distract from what i'm trying to say about the story right mm-hmm. um war stories background history of different countries can be touchy on that right mm-hmm. um or even political philosophy right if i'm uh some place in uh in particular states united states i'm going to switch my stories out and use something that i think is much more local um Right. So it just it just depends. It, I think you can be oversensitive with that. Um but in general I I think it's a something you definitely need to consider 
uh, like I said, you're trying to get out of the way. You're trying to not even be a thing, right? I, I would rather mm -hmm. have them be taken with the idea and the story and buy into the idea than think, oh, Mike told that story. He's American. He's from Texas. Therefore, mm -hmm. he thinks, why would he use that story? Or, or, or even Mike is a great speaker. I don't want them thinking that. I want them thinking about the story and thinking about the idea. I want to get out of the way as much as possible so that what they're interacting with is the idea, not me personally and my potential prejudice or background or anything else. So right. meandering way to answer that question, but. Um, no, that was that was perfect. I mean, definitely serves some food for thought. But beyond, uh, say, a public setting, you know, um, a story is almost always built for an audience, be it your boss or your coworkers, or a prospective investor in your startup. So, in these private contexts, uh, how do you assess the needs in this case uh, to align your narrative? Well, I think that's actually really, really similar. To be honest, it, the production right. values are much lower, right? You're not having to create video or think of visuals per se. Mm -hmm. um, it, and you're not probably writing it out in full or anything like that, depending on who you're talking to. But uh, you can still mine whatever set of stories you have to, right. to use in those situations. Your language drops to being really informal much more conversational, right? Because okay. you sound like a moron. You're like, yes, thank you for coming today. And let me tell you, they're like, just get on with it, right? So yeah. <laughs> at the same time, the more you hear, the more you learn, the, the more you think about how stories work, the mm -hmm. bigger repository you have. And so okay. I think what you'll find is, is you, you'll know if your stories are landing, um, mm -hmm. especially if you have background with these internal audiences that helps quite a bit because now you know okay oh uh, you know meredith is really into knitting and so you can think about what their proclivities are what they like to do what they're into and weave that into your stories as well i wouldn't say hey you like knitting so let me tell you a story about knitting uh, not like that um but you know, you, you can build on past experience with them also. Right. And so right. you're doing the same thing. You're just doing it on a, a micro level. Um, eventually mm -hmm. this can work out really well or it can backfire. If you're too right. formal about it, people are like, Oh, this is a dude always with the story and mm -hmm. they can kind of shut off. Right. So you have to be uh, relaxed about it and has to feel natural and, which if you're working on making it feel natural, it's already probably a bad sign, but. Right. You know. Got it. <laughs> so. No doubts. Um, and do you have any tips to, to perhaps uh, dial up the curiosity of your audience? We, we spoke about the pause and coming up with say provocative statements, any other ways to perhaps dial up curiosity? Um, I like to make people react just that's my personality. And so. Okay. I'm always looking for the surprising angle or the, the story no one has heard about before. Okay. But yet it's common, right? So for example, um, blue, you know, blue didn't exist. Well, everyone's going to react to that on some level. Yeah. At the very least say, what are you talking about? Uh, if yeah. they say you're an idiot, I'm on board with that too. Right. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't really care as long as I've captured reaction, them. Right? Yeah. yeah. As long as I forced them to listen for five more minutes, 
that's mm-hmm. that's my goal, right? Um, it doesn't always have to be dramatic like that. If you're talking to a smaller group, personal stories work a lot more powerfully than it would be talking to a thousand people. Talking to a thousand okay. people, no one's going to care, or they probably shouldn't care about what you had for lunch last week. Um, or whatever small story you're telling, unless it's momentous. But for a smaller mm-hmm. audience, personal stories are, I felt this way and then let me, that can, that can draw people in as well, depending on who they are, right. because then they know you more and you're building that connection. I, I'm always right. about, uh, telling stories to communicate and convince people of ideas, but also to draw on share experience, uh, building community and building rapport with people. So uh, people, if they're not naturally curious, it's going to be a lot more difficult, right? Mm -hmm. If you know what your audience believes, then you can, or is heavily bought into, you can either reinforce that or, you know, contradict it gently to, to make them pay attention. I had a, I had a professor once in my theology program that would just say provocative Mm -hmm. statements all the time, which works sometimes. Other times it gets really old, you know, like, okay. You know, I'm curious about life in general and to our audience, trust me, all of the concepts that we're going to talk about from this point on tie in beautifully with the concept of storytelling. Um, so this is interesting. I recently came across a concept called reality privilege from Mark Andreessen, uh, which states that for the vast majority of humanity, their online world is immeasurably richer and more fulfilling than most of the physical and social environment around them. So my question to you is, how can one work towards a stimulating life that is a rich, not monetarily, but more, more or less rich in terms of yeah, being substantial enough and also filled with fascinating people to talk with, exchange ideas and perhaps date? That is a, <laughs> wow, this, this took a turn. Let's just say it like that. I... Those are some. You're looking huge... for the twist. You're looking for you're, you're looking for the twist in the Frontier Talk podcast. Welcome. I was waiting for this. <laughs> so you're you're what you're asking. Putting your learning. How to have an exciting yeah. life is that kind of the uh, the uh... more or less so. I mean, it's it's more about how do you move away from the default. That's why I said work towards. You get my yeah. point. It's yeah, like yeah. how do you, yeah, work towards that. So uh, uh, that's a huge question. Um, I would say. Food for thought. Yeah, if I had to answer it, I think it's constantly getting out of whatever comfort zone you find yourself in. So, okay, um, you're you're in some situation that you know and you're used to. Yeah, going someplace where you are disempowered, where you are learning and forced to learn, broadens you out. I would say. So what I find myself repeatedly doing actually is finding the next subculture that I'm not a part okay. of and learning about it. Now I'm the I'm the youngest child in my family and so I'm used to just not knowing stuff. Um so on one level that's kind of natural. But I think I think that mm-hmm. kind of displacement that forces you to grow and learn cultivates an attitude of of wanting to learn and develop and experience things you haven't done before. It could be online also, to be honest. Um, you know, I think it's, 
See, come back at me here, Raj. Um, mm. I mean, it could be online. Uh, usually, it, I think it's probably richer if it's not. Now, depending on who you are and where you are, you may mm. not have a choice, right? Um, it, it's fascinating because I saw a report recently that people are starting to live, especially in the States, live in areas that are politically affiliated with what you already believe, which on one hand right. makes some kind of sense. On the other hand, is a recipe for non-growth, disaster, right? Yeah, disaster and non-growth on a personal level. If I'm not surrounded, and reinforcing your beliefs, right? Right, growing exactly. Right, yeah. I'm not saying you have to abandon whatever you're convicted of or believe in, but if you're not interacting with people who believe differently than you, you're not you're not changing as a person. You're not growing as a person, even if it's marshalling and understanding your own philosophy or point of view in order to communicate it more appropriately. So, mm. yeah. So, I mean, I think that applies across everything, across, you know, what you do, uh, who you hang out with, who you potentially date, or what friends you keep, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's hard to do, though. That's hard to do. I, and a lot of times it can be exhausting. I'm in, I'm in multiple friend groups that where I am the outlier. And I didn't do it on right. purpose. It just happened. And so... Mm -hmm. Probably it's my personality just to argue against whatever the group is deciding. So that's probably not, that's mm -hmm. not healthy, but that's a different podcast. Um, but, but yeah, expanding yourself out and stretching you. So that's a lot of that's travel. It could be displacement in terms of where you live. It could be a lot of different things, you know. So, right. I don't know if that, I mean, fundamentally I mean, makes you a more, you know, gives you a more stimulating life, but it seems like it would. Uh, speaking right. about uh, living a simulating life, I personally believe that one of the prerequisites for doing so is to be interesting. So, Mike, how does one become an interesting person? <laughs> wow, that's that's a, yeah. that is a big question. Um, I don't know um, is the ultimate answer. Okay. Um, other than just be interested in things, right. I mean, uh, full stop, right? Uh, be curious, be open to new experiences, um, and be interested in other people. People have stories to tell. People have experiences. And learning from them is, is such an opportunity, I think. And Absolutely. so drawing people out. I, I love, like I said before, I love doing that, like talking to someone for five, 10 minutes and trying to figure out where their heart is, where, what makes them light up. Um, that's just super fun. Awesome, Mike. Thank you for sharing your insights. Right. It's now time for my favorite part of the podcast. It's the Frontier Fire Round, where I put my guests on the spot by asking them a series of rapid fire questions. So, Mike, are you ready for the challenge? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I, I hope, maybe. Why not? Nah, you'll do well. No worries. Let's get started. Um, so the first question is, if you could only teach two words to everyone, what would they be? Two words. Two words. Uh, I shouldn't think about this too much, should I? It was rapid yeah. fire. Um, go. More, please. Right. Okay, that's beautiful. I don't even know what that means. You know, that's, exactly. that's perfect. I mean, you can, you can use it in so many contexts. But anyways, what, what never fails to make you laugh? Um, 
but never fails to make me laugh. Most anything, to be honest. I think there's humor in everything. And so, I mean, except maybe funerals, but even then, mm -hmm. I mean, there's something there. But uh, yeah, I would say just I can find humor in anything just about. Perfect. Um, if you could have one subject um, to learn for for the rest of your life, what subject would that be? History. And why is that? Just to double dive on it. It's, uh, I think it's just full of stories, right? I get to learn about everything. Right. Um, any subject is fair mm -hmm. game in, in that Absolutely. Case. Whereas if I check, you know, like physics, mm -hmm. you know, I'm probably more word-oriented than math-oriented at this point. Right. So, That's right. Unless I'm trying to escape a planet or something. That's a different scenario. <laughs> right. you know. uh, we got Elon Musk for that, so it's all good, I think. I think we can focus <laughs> on the words for now. It's all good. Um, what's your mantra in life, Mike? Wow. I don't think I have one. Really? Should I, should I make one? Your yeah, no, I don't. Words, yeah. I don't, Impossible no, I don't is nothing. I'm... Go get it. Impatient oh. with action, patient with results. No, see, I'm not, I'm not, no. yeah, I don't, okay. No, I don't have a mantra. And like, it feels, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't think I have one actually. Sorry. Let's make, let's make one for you. Be interesting, I guess. <laughs> be interesting that's, that's, or be, that's a, be interested, maybe? That sounds a say, lot like an apple. I would say, I would say interesting thing. lies, it, it. It, I mean, you can't be interesting if you're not interested, right? So I think that that links in beautifully. But anyways, it's just philosophizing at this point in time. Yes. Amazing. And um, finally, Mike, what's your advice to anyone listening to this podcast? <laughs> Listen more. No. Um, anyone listen to this podcast? Uh, just uh, listen to stories. They're all around you. and And tell your own story. Find it and tell it. On that note, Mike, it was an absolute delight to have you on the podcast today. Some of the points you raised around storytelling will go a long way in helping our audience build a compelling narrative to gain more traction for their offering. I thank you for your time and wish you the best of luck in all of your endeavors going forward. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Raj. That was Mike Kaiser. Mike will be delivering a keynote at the European Identity and Cloud Conference, EIC, and that is something that you definitely should not miss. I personally am looking forward to this keynote, and I think you should too. Get your tickets via the link in the description box below. I hope you enjoyed this conversation that explored pretty much every facet of storytelling, and I hope it's given you the toolkit to go out there and build a story to help you achieve your desired outcome. If this podcast is of value to you, please go on and hit that like button and share this with anyone who might find this information useful. Now, as always, feedback is a gift that keeps on giving. So we'd love to hear what you think about our episode. And if you have your very own frameworks that you'd like to share, please share them in the comment section down below. Until next time, this is me, Raj Ekde. And I hope to see you all again on this stimulating journey to redefine the I in identity. Stay safe.